Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Larry Dewey, PhD, is the former chief of psychiatry at the Boise, Idaho Veterans Affairs Medical Center and former associate clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Washington School of Medicine. He has worked with combat veterans and their families in outpatient clinics, support and therapy groups, specialized treatment programs, and inpatient units for 34 years. Veterans treated have included those in World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, Desert Storm, Bosnia and Kosovo, and most recently Afghanistan and Iraq. These veterans come from every branch of the service, every rank, and almost every conceivable type of combat experience. Prior to beginning his clinical career with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. Dewey graduated from the Harvard Medical School in 1979 and completed his psychiatric fellowship and residency training at Yale. He is the author of the book, War and Redemption, Treatment and Recovery in Combat-Related Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. He currently lives in Daybreak, Utah, my own neighborhood, which is precisely how and where we met. Dr. Dewey, welcome to Boundless Body Radio. Thank you. I have to make one quick correction. You said PhD, but you can't elevate me to the rank of a PhD. Oh, I thought you were. A medical doctor is all I am. Ah, gotcha. MD. Gotcha. And I want to say just a little bit about how we met. We wouldn't have met, except I saw this very good-looking man walking ahead of me, picking up trash, careless trash, around the Daybreak Lake. (laughs) And then I saw him depositing in the trash can. And I was so impressed with that that I had to run up beside him and say, you're a very good looking man. And even better, <laughs> I, I caught you picking up trash. Here's fi- uh, high five. <laughs> That's great. I don't know who this good looking man you're talking about is, but um, it's funny. It actually backfired on me today. I picked something up and it had, I, I don't know what was inside the package, but it was orange and goopy and it got all over my arms and hands and it was a little gross. Yuck. Yeah, not, not not ideal. Well, it was really fun to walk with you that day. Uh, we're now in your living room, which is yes. great. Um, I want you to tell me a little bit about walking. Do you walk every single day? Uh, every day that I don't ride a bicycle. I love that. I love that. Two very good decisions. Um, what kind of bike do you have? I have a used bike, uh, a used women's bike that I bought from a female friend of mine, and it serves me really well. That's great. How many miles do you ride? I'll usually ride about... Probably six to 10 miles when I ride. Nice. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. What about walking? How long do you normally walk? I normally walk from somewhere between one and two hours. That's great. Wow. Um, is this a practice you've done for a long time? Yes. What, uh, what benefits have you noticed? Well, the benefits are just innumerable. I'm the youngest of eight children. Mm. Both of my parents and all of my older siblings at one time or another were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Oh, wow. So it was very clear in my, that my future was going to be the same. But as a medical doctor, I know a few things that can really uh, control and prevent that happening. Mm. Uh, and the most important one is regular daily exercise. I love that. Yeah, yeah that's great. Man, I, I, I've i always liked to walk, um, but I've never... The, the pandemic was the most amazing thing that has ever happened as far as my walking practice. I was probably averaging four or five miles before and not really paying attention to it that much. And that was just, you know, maybe commuting or walking around the gym we were working at at the time. But the pandemic gave us this gift of time. And now this year I've averaged, man, I average probably 20,000 steps a day, which is about 10 miles a day. Mm-hmm. That's where I do a lot of my work and it's where I do a lot of my dictation. And it has been the most restorative and amazing practice that I've ever included in my life. Exercise is the best medicine for almost every ill. 
I love that. Do you believe that it would have the same benefit if you were walking on a treadmill versus walking outside with the birds and fresh air and the wind and things like that? Well, walking, I mean, for your body, it's probably the same. For your mind and your soul, your heart, be outside. I love that. I love that. It's been really fun to walk around the lake every single day and get to know the ducks and the birds and where uh-huh. they hang out and you see the yep. little families and they're growing and yep. the singing and yep. all that stuff. It's been really joyous. Well, that's yes. great. Well, I think it was fortuitous that we found each other on a walk and you told me a little bit about your work, which I find absolutely fascinating. So before we dive into that, I'd love to hear your personal story growing up. You said youngest of eight children. Well, I grew up on a farm west of Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a Let's just say it was a poor farm. That is, uh, my parents had to work to um, make it a fun- to make a living. Uh, my mother was an egg candler, and a, my parents went and did janitorial work every evening. Um, we had cows and sheep. Um, we got up at five every morning and uh, milked the cows and fed the animals. Love and that. Uh, uh, my mother had already would have already left for work at the egg farm, and my dad would make breakfast and uh, put me on the bus to school. Or uh, when I was 14 and I had a driver's license, I'd, I drove myself to school. I would come home. My parents would have already left uh, for their janitorial work. I would milk the cows, do the chores. Uh, for a while, my brother was there, but he was four years older than me. And so throughout high school, I was the only child there. So I was taking care of the cows every night and every morning and uh, would um, you know come home about six would get my homework done and my parents would come home about uh, 10 PM just in time for us to say goodnight to each other. And then we'd do it again the next day. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty ideal life, but not a lot of time with your parents. I'm sure the relationship with you and your siblings were, was pretty tight. It was, but the nicest thing about that life was I've never done anything that was harder than living on my farm, living on the farm with my parents. <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> That, that is so wise. I, I was serving. I was serving a mission in um, in Belgium. Okay. In the middle of winter, it was very cold. It was uh, 1971 in the middle of winter, and uh, uh, one of the general authorities was interviewing us all. And I walked in, and he said, "Why are you smiling?" And I said, "Because I didn't have to get up at 5 a.m. and milk the cows today." <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. You know, one of the, one of my favorite phrases, somebody just introduced this to me is, um, what it was easy now, hard later or hard now, easy later. Uh, the latter is much better. <laughs> I, I totally, totally agree. I totally agree. I sometimes worry about the growing, you know, generation that's coming up now and they, they're not really exposed to that kind of stuff as often. I wonder how, how difficult life is going to be later on when they're faced with some serious challenges. Yeah. It was a privilege for me to have to work that hard. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. When did you start getting interested in psychology? Psychiatry? Psychiatry, Psychiatry, yeah. Yeah. It's a strange story. Um, I managed to talk my parents into letting me go visit one of my sisters in California. At that time, she was a social worker at the largest state hospital in the country, uh, Napa State Hospital in California. Mm. Now, this is a long time ago. This is before HIPAA and a lot of regulations. So I I rode the bus to California, and, and she picked me up, and then she had to go to work on Monday. I got there on a Saturday. She had to go to work on Monday, and she said, well, you can stay here, watch TVs, da 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 or you can come with me to work. I said, yeah, I'd like to come with you to work. So I won't give you all the details, but let it be said that I spent a week on uh, inpatient psychiatry ward. Um, I got exposed to people with schizophrenia, with bipolar disorder. I got exposed to people with uh, depression, same-sex attraction, all kinds of things I didn't even know existed when I was a farm boy in Idaho. And 
I was just so curious. I couldn't stop my curiosity after that. Wow. I had to know what made people, why people thought the way they thought, why they spoke the way they spoke, why they did the, what they did, because it was different than anything I'd seen before. Wow. That's so interesting. It was just pure curiosity. Wow. wow. And you made it to Harvard. What was that like? I was in over my head. <laughs> Remember, I went from a farm in Idaho to to uh, Harvard College. Small was, fish in a big pond. Yeah, I was definitely in over my head. I mean, I could. Uh, uh, I was not prepared for the place, but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't fail. Um, the first paper I wrote, the the my t- my professor gave me a D minus, and she said. I didn't want to discourage you too much. This is an F paper, but I gave you a D minus anyway. <laughs> brutal. <laughs> but, brutal. Uh, but I managed, I, I managed to learn. And then I did the smartest thing I ever did was, uh, I married my wife and she taught me how to write. And so, uh, I actually, um, because with her help and with all of the training she gave me, I actually graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College. That's amazing. Yeah, what a cool thing to say. It was, yeah, she she really made a big difference. That's amazing. <laughs> I just met her. She's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, um, I'm curious. You know, we're we're going to talk about a specific type of trauma today, but I'm curious through the course of your career, I, I'm sure that schizophrenia and bipolar were, you know, they were around back then, mm-hmm. but they sure seem like they're a lot more prevalent. And it seems like mental health is really deteriorating. Is that something you've noticed? And do you, do you have any ideas of why that might be? Well, um, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder have been relatively constant. So about 1% of the population of the world is afflicted with schizophrenia mm. and somewhere around uh, 2% of the population in the world is afflicted with bipolar disorder. But those are core illnesses that are primarily genetic and, um, but depression and anxiety uh, uh, also very serious illness. In fact, uh, depression causes more morbidity and loss of work time the world over than any other single illness. Wow. Um, and uh, those, those are probably worse in a, for a variety of reasons. You have to understand, if you think about how we developed as human beings, we lived outside, we worked from sunup to sundown. We were either farming or we were hunting and gathering, but we were laboring outside from the time the sun came up until the time the sun went down, and then we slept a long time. Yep. And uh, our current society, uh, we sit at a desk. It's not exercise. Um, we there are there the most of the people are not doing jobs that are labor intensive. Most of their jobs are not outside. They're not getting enough sunlight. Uh, they're not getting enough physical exercise, and they're definitely not getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, lack of sleep, lack of physical exercise, lack of sunlight uh, predispose human beings to depression. Mm. And so definitely depression is worse now. Uh, it's not that it wasn't there. It's always been there, but it's worse now. The pandemic has been uh, pretty awful for young people. Uh, the Center for Disease Control has done some nice studies that showed that you know the ordinary level of a depression and anxiety in adolescence is about 10% of each. And during the pandemic, um, the level of depression and anxiety in adolescence has doubled. Oh, year and a half. Yeah. 
That's, I mean, think of, that's a lot of lives. That's a lot of, that is a lot of misery. Wow. Wow. And if you can't change the course and the trajectory of that at an early age, I imagine it probably just gets worse. Yes and no. Mm. Uh, so you do, adolescence is a particularly trying time. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily get worse, but there are so many modifiable factors to deal with that, that if people will simply, simply seek treatment and, and if they have the energy and the courage to follow through with the treatment, uh, they're very treatable conditions. Wow. Interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned sunlight. That's a huge, huge passion of mine. An article that I wrote for a local magazine, um, golf magazine got rejected. Um, and the, the name of the, the article was wise interactions with the sun. And I made the case, this was back in the springtime. I made the case just to use sunscreen as like the very last resort, but to get out in the sun, be smart about it. Don't mm-hmm. go out in midday sun. If your body's not used to it in the, on the solstice, but you know, start in the springtime, start when it's dusk or dawn and just be out and be in the bright. And I, I, I just think that big blue light from the sky is just so healing at a certain time of day that that can be really restorative. And you're right. I think when we, we don't get enough of that during the day and then we have blue light electronics on all night, it can be really harmful. Right. I mean, I suppose you've heard of light therapy. Yeah. Um, and we used to, rest, there's a, there's a small group of people who have, um, who have pretty severe winter depressions that remit in the springtime mm. and then they get depressed again as uh, winter comes on. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're, we have learned that a full spectrum light that's of about 10,000 lux okay. uh, can be used as a light therapy in a house. Uh, you have to use it properly. You have to be pretty close to it. It has to hit your retinas. Mm. Um, it's not got UV light in it. It's not a tanning light. That's terrible. That would, that would destroy yep. your vision. Yep. Um, but it's a full spectrum bright light. And that works really well uh, to treat um, a winter depression yeah. when used properly. But we've actually discovered with a few recent studies that it works for a lot of people for any depression. Wow. And even in the summertime, most of us don't get enough sunlight. The amount of sunlight that you need for that's most effective in treating depression is five hours a day. Wow. Most of us do not get not that. Not even close. Not even in the summertime. <laughs> Not even when the days are, are 18 hours long and wow. the night's just uh, six hours long. Wow. Most of us don't get enough. But uh, a, a therapy light can really make a difference. That's amazing. You can use it while you're working on a computer. You can use it while you're eating. You can use it while you're reading. Um, it's excellent. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's not too surprising. I, I think yeah. more people could benefit from even just a little bit more than they're getting. Yep. Tell us a little bit about when you started to get um, interested in trauma specifically and um, and PTSD in particular. Okay. Um, well, probably the thing that first caught my attention was um, while I was serving as a missionary in Europe, I was serving in Belgium and France. And that part of the world has had major wars. And this was, this was what years? This would be 1970 to 72. So that's pretty fresh. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they've had major wars. And I, for a variety of reasons— I was attracted to the military graveyards. Um, I had always been interested in reading military history. I'm not really sure why, but it always attracted me. Mm -hmm. I had read a lot of military history, and so I visited some of the battlefields, and I visited some of the graveyards. And in some of those graveyards are buried several Medal of Honor winners. And I remember reading the, um, the text of their decoration, 
And what caught my attention was that all of these men had died trying to save people and had risked their life to save others. And that seemed somewhat incongruous to me. That caught my attention. Why did they love their comrades so much that they would expose themselves to dreadful uh, enemy fire to rescue them, to save them, to silence the machine guns, to destroy the tanks that were killing their, their fellow soldiers? That attracted me. I, it was that's all it was. Mm. But my first, when I went into psychiatry, my first long-term psychotherapy patient was a man who had been the captain of a scout company in World War II that had arrived at the Rhine at the Remagen Bridge uh, early on uh, when they were trying to capture that bridge from the Germans, which they eventually did, and, and it speeded up our crossing the Rhine River by weeks. Wow! And uh, he had lost a large number of his, men, of his men in his company fighting over that bridge over the next nine days as they tried to defend the bridge mm. uh, after it was captured. And he became a, became a civil engineer, and he worked for a large um, power company in New England. And uh, he discovered he couldn't cross bridges. <laughs> wow. And um, – he would go to great lengths to drive around New England, not crossing bridges, checking on power, because there's wow. a lot of rivers that are in New England. And you have to cross a lot, a lot of bridges. bridges. So that was a real struggle for him. And uh, after he retired, it became even harder for him, and he sought therapy, and he ended up being my patient at Yale. Mm. And I worked with him, and uh, he he taught me so much about how combat can affect people. He said at one point, as captain of the company. The decisions I made at the beginning of every day determined who lived and who died in the oh. company because he gave them their assignments and he felt responsible for every death. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. So I think that intrigued me. Um, one of my psychotherapy supervisors at Yale was a man named Art Blank, who was one of the psychiatrists that helped found uh, the Vietnam Veterans Outreach Centers. Uh, so he introduced me to a lot. Of, he, would, he had been a, um, uh, a psychiatrist in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And uh, I just uh, continued to find that working with veterans was both very challenging and very attractive to me in a lot of ways. Um, I would have to say that there came a point in my career where it was actually making me sick. And I had to seek psychotherapy to, wow. to help me uh, understand why my work with veterans was making me sick. Physically ill. Physically ill, yeah. And uh, I got some very good help and treatment with that and overcame that and eventually um, um, spent my whole career working primarily with outside-the-wire veterans. Let's talk about two classes of military people. And I think one way of thinking about it is inside-the-wire and outside-the-wire. Okay. So you think of the wire as the compound, right? So when you're inside the wire, <clears throat> you're always taking incoming enemy fire. And you may be shooting at the enemy, but you're not seeing what happens. You may be on an artillery unit inside the wire. You're not really seeing what's happening to the enemy. You're generally the receptive, you're generally receptive to violence. Mm. Uh, people are being killed around you inside the wire, but you're not killing. I see. Outside the wire, people are hunters and killers. 
They're tracking down the enemy. They're ambushing the enemy. They're killing the enemy. Um, they're snipers. They're light infantry. They're airborne. They're special forces. They're SEALs. Those are outside-the-wire people. Okay. And um, both groups develop symptoms of PTSD, but it's very different in the two groups. The inside-the-wire people develop what we would call traditional PTSD. That is, they're victims of violence, and they're seen people killed around them. They're wounded themselves. They're recipients of violence. Outside the wire are both recipients of violence, but they're also killers. They're also killing people. And one of the things I discovered in my work is that no one had ever taught me how to deal with outside-the-wire people. That's, that's part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is when we were out on our walk and you were describing this, I had never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, it makes perfect sense. So what were the different symptoms in each one of the two groups? Well, <clears throat> inside the wire, people had traditional PTSD. That is, they would have uh, flashbacks and nightmares about um, uh, being in death, deadly situations, seeing people blown to pieces, uh, being wounded. Uh, so they had... Um, uh, they had the traditional symptoms of hyperactivity and nightmares and misery about being uh, victims of violence. Uh, the outside-the-wire people <clears throat> were different in a lot of ways. First off, they're, they're trained at a certain level, and they're, they, become, they become able to kill, not with impunity, but they become able to kill. They've had to cross that barrier that keeps human beings from killing others, and they've had to deal with that. And they are much more often purely professional soldiers. So they have chosen this life work. Uh, or they got selected for that, and they found that they could do it effectively because mm. – um, Sometimes they weren't professional soldiers. Uh, a lot of World War II and Korean outside the war and Vietnam outside the wire soldiers were not professional soldiers, but they were highly trained, uh, light infantry and paratroopers and special forces. And they were, they were suited to doing that kind of work, uh, that kind of work of death. Um, in psychiatry, we make a diagnosis based on symptoms and function. Mm. So... Very resilient people can develop PTSD both inside the wire and outside the wire. Uh, But in fact, only about a quarter of those who have symptoms will lose their ability to function. Mm. So if you think about it, you know, one veteran talked about fear and he said, we always had fear. But it became so, we became so accustomed to it <clears throat> that it no longer kept us from doing our jobs. Mm. It did not interfere with our functioning. So you think about someone who's gotten to that point. Um, so, you know, a typical outside the wire veteran would still be able to do their job, uh, would still be able to function in the military. Where they would have misery was in intimate relations. I get that's exactly where my mind was going, like like completely closed off. They would have to really suppress their emotions to manage to keep doing what they were doing. They would have to put a tight control on those. And how do you share that with an intimate partner? Yeah, right. And uh, how do you manage that? And how do you cry again? And how do you be tender again? 
after you have been doing that uh, for so long. Wow. Wow. That's super interesting. I'm curious as you were kind of discovering this, were you, were you at all like getting frustrated that, you know, this hadn't been explored? There wasn't maybe a solution to it just yet. Yeah, I was, I was a lost little lamb. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I was confronting something that, um, I mean, I, I remember sitting in uh, one of my combat vets groups and we'd been meeting, this was all world war two vets. And we'd been meeting for about a year when one of the vets said, to their other members of their group, well, aren't we all murderers? And I'm looking at the group, and they're all nodding their heads yes. Wow. And these are men who were just like my father. Same age. These are men who I had grown very fond of, if not, in fact, in love with. And they're all nodding their heads that they're all murderers. That was almost intolerable for me. Wow. You know, I wanted to just scream and said, well, it was just the war. Yeah. Absolutely wrong response. <laughs> <laughs> Refrain. <laughs> Sorry. That's not the right thing to well, say. Learned that. Funny. Been that, done that. That's, that's a terrible mistake. At least I was far enough along in that point Good. that I didn't do that. <laughs> that's funny. But that's what we spent so much of the time talking about is the killing. Because in, just take World War II, for instance. World War II, uh, the European veterans are fighting in the most densely populated continent in the world. So Europe doesn't have the most people, but it has the most people per square mile. Yeah. You cannot fight as infantry in World War II and not kill civilians. So, yeah. so you know, a typical infantry engagement, um, they're trying to take a little village. Um, you know, the Germans have uh, a, uh, a machine gun position on top of the uh, tallest, strongest building in the uh, in the village, they've got snipers scattered around. They've got other strongholds, and in various ways, you're trying to take it. And you know, basically, um, <clears throat> typical way of taking a, a strong house is you're laying down covering fire. A couple of guys run to the house, get their backs to the walls, throw in grenades in the windows, blow them up, smash down the door, shoot through the ceiling, trying to kill anybody who's up uh, above. Here's some noises in the basement. Threw down a couple of grenades down in the basement. You know, after two or three minutes of just hellish killing, uh, maybe they'll go down and check out the basement. Wow. What was in the basement? Yeah, the family. The family. Yeah. Yeah. And they killed them all. Women, children, old man. They're all dead. Wow. Now, did they intend that? No. But did they do it? Yes. Um, You know, uh, basically. Dissonance. You know, just, just, just think of a, of a, of a artillery unit laying down fire on a village that the infantry is attacking. Okay. After the infantry's captured the village, the artillery unit moves into the village. They can see what their guns have done. Yes. They've killed a bunch of Germans, but they've also killed an awful lot of civilians. Wow. That, that type of killing. What happens also is that as the soldiers interact with each other, enemy against enemy, you, have a situation always, if you're doing it long enough, that you begin to realize that the person you're fighting against is just another human being like you. Mm. So one of my veterans, he talks about, this is an Idaho farmer, he talks about the biggest mistake I ever made. So his unit is recapturing Guam from the Japanese, okay? And he is a machine gunner, and uh, he's killed a lot of people. And it's toward the end of the battle, and in broad daylight— Japanese squad of about 20, 12 men 
just jump up and charge his machine gun position, and he kills them all. Nothing else happens. Pretty soon they decide they'll go out to crawl out, and they'll battle check these guys. He said, I went out, and I reached into the pocket of this one man, and I pulled out his wallet, and I opened it up. What did he see? Casey, what do you think he saw? I, mean, I would assume a picture or something. Yeah, he saw a picture. He saw a picture of a young woman and a little, little child. Yeah, wow. And he said, it completely changed the war for me. I couldn't kill the enemy with impunity after that anymore. Wow. You know, it takes propaganda to get us to kill. Yeah. We have to be killing someone who is not really human. They have to be a Jap. They had to be a Nip. They have to be a Nazi. They have to be a terrorist, whatever. We have to turn them into something that's not human. Mm. But as we continue to kill them, eventually the enemy turns into a human being just like us. Wow. Whether you're fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan, whether you're fighting in uh, Vietnam or France or Korea— uh, or Okinawa, eventually the enemy, you recognize the enemy is just another person like us. Wow. And you can continue to kill them, but you're paying a heavier price for doing that. Interesting. And that's, that's, that's just the enemy. But then you're killing civilians. They're always getting in the field of fire. They're always involved. Um, my father-in-law did 35 combat missions over Germany, bombing from a B-24. He knows he killed hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians mm. doing that. Um, uh, you, you can't help it. It's just how modern warfare is conducted. And, um, you know, there was probably World War I, a trench warfare, more limited. Uh, there was about 22 million combatants killed and only about 5 million civilians turned on its head in World War II. Wow. You know? Uh, maybe maybe 50 million combatants killed, maybe 250 million civilians killed. Wow. So it just uh, it's just part of it's part of killing civilians becomes something you have to live with. Uh, and then you kill each other. Mm. Friendly fire incidents. Sure. Uh, my vets hate that term. Um, but it happens all the time that in combat, um, at night, uh, bad information, uh, someone forgetting the password, uh, all kinds of things. You also do another level of killing. Um, during the Battle of the Bulge, the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge, a medical unit of the 101st Airborne was captured by the Germans at Malmody and then were massacred. They were gunned down and killed in cold blood by a German SS team. They just pulled up to the pen wherever where the Allied prisoners of war were kept, and they just began starting again wow. machine gunning them. A couple of my 101st Airborne veterans told me after that we never took prisoners anymore. Wow! If they tried to surrender to us, we just shot them. Wow! Now that doesn't mean they all did that. Sure. One of my vets would just never talk about what happened when his unit liberated Dachau. But I know what happened when his unit liberated Dachau. They were so distressed by what happened that they took the Nazi guards, they lined them up against the stone wall, and they machine gunned them all to death. Wow. Now, it just seems like the right thing to do at the time. But in your soul, it's not the right thing. It mm. bothers you forever. So if you, look at the, if you look at kind of the revenge killings, you look at, or justice killings, you look at what happens with some of the civilians, you look at how you sometimes kill your own troops. And then you look at what happens when 
you've grown to hate the enemy so much that you don't just kill them. You cut them up in pieces. Wow. Uh, you cut off their ears as a trophy, uh, things like that. Wow. Um, it, it, is, it becomes, a, becomes a tremendous soul-destroying burden if you can't figure out a way out of it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's heavy. I, I really love war movies, um, and I don't know if you've watched Band of Brothers, but one mm-hmm. of the episodes of Band of Brothers, they liberate one of the concentration camps, and that, is, that was so haunting to watch. And they were, you know, giving them food from the, from the city and they had to take the food away because they couldn't eat so much all at once. And like, mm-hmm. how would that not stick with you for the rest of your life? That was just a, an hour long TV program. Right. I mean, there's, there's one of the episodes six, seven or eight. I can't remember which one. Um, in fact, uh, it was one of my airborne vets who gave me the book band of brothers. Oh, cool. I need to read that. Uh, he, he was in the, he was in the 82nd airborne. He said, this isn't my unit, but it describes what happened to my unit. In his particular unit, in the 82nd Airborne, uh, they dropped at Normandy. Uh, they lost uh, uh, 80% of the company at Normandy. Um, they got re-manned. Uh, they got involved uh, at St. Vith in the Battle of the Bulge and lost 50% of their co- company again. They were in the, uh, in the effort Operation Market Garden to try to capture a series of bridges to break through the German lines um, at the Rhine, and they lost 50% of their unit again. So in, in those things, um, you know, basically that kind of heartbreaking loss is, a tr- there's a tremendous load of grief that men begin to carry and women now um, from that kind of combat. Sure. So what were the standard ways that you would help these soldiers um, initially, like when you're first starting your career and maybe again, getting a little frustrated that there wasn't the, the book, the book that, oh, that the, you the, ended up writing because it hadn't been written. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, I think it was actually, there was another book published just a few months after mine, but mine was actually probably the first book that really looked in depth at uh, what killing does to people mm. uh, that I can remember. Mm. Um, but um Initially, initially, I tried to tell myself and tell them that it was just war. Well, that doesn't work. They know better. Uh, they know that they made decisions mm. and they took actions and they know how it affected them. What happened when I could finally accept inside myself that I was capable of doing the same things that they had told me? that I could be an angel or a devil. I could, I could kill in the ways that they had killed. Um, uh, I might be able to be brave in the ways that they were brave. Maybe I'm not so sure. Um, but when I finally accepted that side, that inside of me, my veterans then could talk to me because what they have to be able to do is to have someone listen without judging and listen with understanding. And um, a therapist has to have come to terms with their own inner self uh, and their own inner struggles in a way that they can hear and accept this person as a as an important human being. Because it's easy to do it when the person is a victim. It's harder to do when the person is the killer. Sure. 
Uh, and um, but both are human conditions. What what was important for me as after crossing that bridge was you have to listen. You have to listen without reacting. You have to not show dismay on your face. You have to not have dismay inside of you. Think how hard that is. Yeah. You have to not, you know, when they're telling you about, you know, having tortured someone to get information out of them because they were so desperate to get the information so that they could keep other men from their unit from being killed. When they're telling you that, you have to be able to accept that. And you have to be able to really accept that. One of the things I say is that humans are smarter than dogs. So every dog I meet knows that I'm afraid of it because I was beaten, bitten very badly by a dog when I was one. I don't remember it, ah. but it, I had to have stitches in my face, and uh, it was uh, very traumatic for a one-year-old. Um, and it's left me with a, an inner fear of dogs that I can't hide. The dogs always can sense it, and it makes them scared, and so they bark at me. So the nicest dog will be walking down the street. All of a sudden, will start barking at me, and the, their owner will look at me like I must be some kind of oh, no. mass murderer or criminal because this dog never barks at anybody. <laughs> it will bark at me because it senses my fear, and it makes them afraid. Mm. Okay, human beings can tell whether or not I can hear them. And once I got to the point that I could hear them and not judge them, uh, then, then my soldiers began telling me the things that were most distressing to them about what they had done in the war. And being able to do that first is so important. Mm. Um, and to have someone that they can, usually the only person they feel like they can do that is another combat vet who's had to do the same things. And they feel like they can talk to them. They don't feel like they can talk to their family. They've tried. Uh, maybe maybe their family has shown too much distress when they've tried to tell them those kind of things. Or they experience that their family is feeling so much distress when they're trying to tell them those kind of things. There are powerful healing forces that are way beyond what happens in any kind of therapy. So <clears throat> I, had, I had two combat groups going on at this point. This was later in my career. I had about 25 outside-the-wire soldiers. Uh, half of them were wearing officers, and it's better to put the officers by themselves, and it's better to put the enlisted men by themselves, mm. uh, because if you don't do that, then the enlisted men won't talk. <laughs> That's funny. That and, the makes sense. and the officers start giving orders, and That's it's a disaster. Funny. That's funny. So I had, a, I had a group of officers, and I had a group of enlisted men, and they were all uh, World War II, uh, Korean, and Vietnam uh, soldiers at that time. I just was starting to get some people from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but um, <clears throat> they were mostly World War II, Korean, and Vietnam uh, uh, combat soldiers at that time. And we had an interesting thing. It was... It was the Bosnian War where you were seeing these pictures of these refugees fleeing from the Serbs, right? And the dress code hadn't changed from World War II. <laughs> People were still wearing the same clothes in Bosnia as, they, as our, my combat soldiers from World War II had seen. Wow. And they just couldn't leave that war. That, that got them so agitated, that whole war, seeing people who just reminded them of all the refugees and civilians they'd seen in, in Europe. And I finally just had to say, wait, we got to stop. We got to stop. And I said, we're going to focus for the next several months 
solely not on the war. We can talk about the war for five minutes, and then we got to stop. We're going to talk about what has helped you the most over the course of your life. Adjust. And they came up with a list of 25 things, and eventually we distilled them down into what they called the big three after Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin. <laughs> the big three. And the first one is staying busy doing good. The second one is maintaining loving relationships. And the third one is spiritual connectivity. When you looked at their lives, and these were the survivors, these were the ones who had gone through the combat, eventually given up their drug abuse and alcohol abuse uh, uh, as self-treatment, had gone through the combat, had sobered up, had managed to finally establish a stable family, either lucky from the beginning or a second or a third marriage, had finally established a stable family, had, had uh, found meaningful work. And uh, so these were the ones who would, because if they didn't do that, they died young. Mm. They died young from alcohol abuse, from suicide, from drug abuse, from living wild and crazy and getting in accidents and getting killed, things like that. Okay. Mm. So these are the, these are the ones who had found the secrets and the secret was those three things. Stand busy doing good, developing again, loving and meaningful relationships and making spiritual connectivity. So a lot of them would be typical to, typical to an Iraqi veteran I treated, one of the first ones I treated. He was a very devout Christian. Um, He's in the army. He is deployed to Iraq. Um, he's very concerned about what he's doing. He's in a um, he's in what, what was what they called a kind of an escort unit. So they were up armored Humvees with heavy firepower, and they would escort the convoys that crossed crisscrossed Iraq. And doing that, they were they were involved in an engagement almost every day. Yeah, and uh, killing people almost every day. And he read his Bible, and he prayed, and his unit liked to have him read something from the Bible and pray for them before they went out on missions. And he was doing that all through Iraq. He comes home from Iraq, and he goes back to his church. And the first thing that happens is the pastor walks up and puts his arm around him and said, you were doing God's work in Iraq. Now that just severed him from his church because he knew he wasn't doing God's work in Iraq. Wow. He knew he was killing people. Sometimes they were civilians. Sometimes they were just other soldiers like him. He knew that. Mm. And that was just impossible that he was told that. And he, he walked out and never went back. Wow. And he stopped reading the Bible. And uh, I know I got so nervous about him stopping reading the Bible, I said, why don't you start reading the Bible again? And he just about walked out of my office. <laughs> I knew I'd, I, I had established a connection with him, and I knew I had just severed the connection when I said that. Wow. <laughs> and I backpedaled as fast as I could and eventually got him to stay, and, wow. and, and we did good work together. But what does he have to do? He is going to have that. His spirituality is very important. So what was he planning on doing? Well, it was so typical. Well, you know, I think I'm going to re-up and go back. Hmm. It was so typical because... He was more comfortable going back into the battlefield with other comrades who had been there than he was staying a civilian. Wow. So how's he going to deal with that? I mean, he is, he is 
going to have to develop a love relationship. One of my Vietnam vets said at one point, he said, he said, I don't know what would have happened to me, but my second wife, I let her love me. I don't even know how I did that, he said, but I let her love me. And because I let her love me, pretty soon I wanted to do everything I could to be worthy of that love. You can see what a draw that was, what a powerful. And most of the men, and it's mostly when men that I've worked with, most of the men discover a new and deeper, most of the men who do well discover a new and deeper form of spirituality hmm. that allows them to um, connect. It's why the book says war and redemption. Redemption is a weird word to use with war. It's a weird, weird word. But the vets I worked with liked that word best. Huh. Because they felt, they felt like this group of men at that time feel like in some way they had been redeemed. And they had been redeemed by working hard and doing good for others. Altruism is so important. They had been redeemed by loving relationships, and they had been redeemed uh, by a new spiritual connection that they felt uh, uh, that they felt merciful. That they felt that they were being treated with mercy. Wow! And that they could begin to treat themselves with mercy. That's amazing. And eventually forgive themselves. Mm. Did it have to be any particular type of spirituality or just a spirituality practice? No, just a spirituality practice. I mean, all varieties of Christian religions were mostly what my men were involved in, but some of them became uh, Buddhists wow. uh, and went that direction. Uh, some of them got deep into yoga and uh, a, a really a spiritual connection with nature. So I, I, I wouldn't say that it had to be any particular variety, most of the men I worked with were Christian and eventually went back to some version of Christianity. I remember my first cousin. So I have a first cousin because of the differences in her ages. I have a first cousin who was a combat Marine at Okinawa. Wow. And uh, he was with the first Marine division in Okinawa. He was, he was in combat, solid combat for so many days. And Okinawa was a lot like uh, world war one. It was trench warfare in many ways. And he was praying in his foxhole that he could somehow get out of this alive. And while he was praying, a mortar round landed in his foxhole and blew him out of the foxhole. He slid down a ridge, about 100 yards in the mud down a ridge. He got to the bottom of the ridge, and he could see that bone was sticking out of his leg. He had a compound wound. And he started to laugh and rejoice because he knew he'd never be able to go back into combat again. <laughs> now, fast forward. He's living back in Idaho. Uh, he's gotten married. He has a happy marriage. He's got a son. And um, he's a man who can't buy a Japanese car. He can't do anything that's Japanese. Um, and his oldest son opens up his mission call to Brazil? Japan. Oh, oh of course. <laughs> of course. To Japan. Wow. And he is just enraged. He cannot believe it. You know, he's not even sure he's going to let his son go to Japan, but he can't stop him. His son goes to Japan. His son is regularly writing him letters, okay? He can't touch the letter. He can't open the letter. Wow. And finally, he gets a letter from a Japanese man who has joined his church. Not from his son, but from a Japanese man. And his wife opens up the letter and makes him read it. 
And he begins to cry. And he cries and he cries and he cries. And after he's done, he can forgive the Japanese again. Wow. Wow. It's really powerful. It's it's so easy to push difficult emotions down and hold them in without trying to feel them. And I think it's so important to, you know, the times, whether it's PTSD or, or any, any trauma that all of us carry around to try to try to just be with it. Oh, just, just feel it. It's going to be uncomfortable. What you're saying is so true because the initial response is to push it in the deepest corners of your subconscious and try to deny it. That's the initial response. And it can only work transiently. And then you're using substances to try to deny it. And then you're using thrills to try to deny it. Then you're doing other things. Then you're going back into combat to yeah. try to make it go away. Uh, and the only thing you can do that works is to turn and look at it and face it in all of its horror. Wow. And you need help to do that. Yeah. You need to be able to do that with somebody. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Do you have another favorite story of somebody you worked with that um, you tra- helped transform, help them transform the yeah, lives? Yeah, I, I never transformed them, but they transformed themselves. Thought you might say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you this one. This one was a Korean War vet, okay? He was um, an artilleryman. Uh, he was, uh, it was light artillery, so he's always very close to the front. Uh, he was in a situation where uh, uh, they had had to abandon their artillery and he was fighting with the infantry right at the front line. They were out of ammunition. And um, the Chinese just kept coming. And um, all of a sudden, a man next to him stood up and threw down his weapon and surrendered. And he, and he said, the biggest regret I ever had was I didn't shoot and kill him. Wow. Because as soon as he did that, some others did it. And pretty soon enough of them had done it that all he could do was turn around and run. Wow. And as he was running, he took a bullet through the lungs and he collapsed. He wasn't dead. A Chinese officer came up to him and kicked him a couple of times and then t- took out his great coat. He had a, you know, a big great coat to keep him warm in the winter. Took that great coat and walked off and left him there. Wow. Just supposing he would, he would die. Another man in his unit had taken a bullet through both ankles, and they were lying there together. Eventually, for reasons he could not explain, the Chinese simply put them in a little hut and left them there to die. Mm. And they would have died because neither one of them could walk, neither one of them could move. And um, there was a Korean farmer that the Chinese had coerced into cooking all their food for them. And that farmer, after the Chinese had eaten, he would scrape out the, f- the pots of the burnt rice and he would secretly take the burnt rice to these two Americans wow. and feed it to them. And he said that burnt rice tasted like ambrosia. To us. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the only, it was the only food they ever got. They would get water and burnt rice wow. at the end of the day. They were in that situation for about a month. And then an American offensive pushed the Chinese away and found these two men in that situation. Um, he had a bullet lodged in his lung near his heart. They felt like it was too dangerous to try to take it out. So he was walking around with that bullet for a lot of years. He was in the hospital for quite a while. When he got out, uh, he had typical trauma nightmares. He was drinking to try to suppress the nightmares. Um, He met a woman who he fell in love with, 
and who seemed to love him despite the fact that he was not worth much in his own eyes. And um, he tried to stop drinking. He wasn't successful, but he cut down. They got married. He, when they got married, he realized, I've got to make a living, and he started working on some education. And then a terribly important thing happened. His wife got pregnant and gave birth to a child, a little girl. And he's holding that little girl in his arms, and he said, I cannot ever drink again. Wow. She needs me too much. And he stopped. Mm. Not an unusual story. He stopped drinking. The PTSD didn't go away, but he stopped drinking, and that helped him control it a little bit. And <clears throat> he maintained his spiritual connectedness in a way, but he was, he was very angry in some ways at God. He says, he said that he was walking into his house carrying groceries. And he'd been kind of yelling at God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And he heard God's voice say, love me. Hmm. And he said, I knew what that meant. It meant I needed to love people around me. Hmm. And he and his wife began searching for the rest of the unit that had all been captured by the Chinese. And of course, almost none of them had survived captivity. And uh, he began looking for veterans that needed help. And he, would, he and his wife would look for them. And then they would help them in small and simple ways. His relationship with his wife, his job as an engineer, he became an engineer, and his absolutely altruistic outlook toward helping veterans that were down and out completely changed his life. Mm. Now, during that time, yes, he got into treatment with us. And he would talk through a lot of these things. And he eventually got to the point that he said, it would have been worse if I'd shot and killed that guy <laughs> than if I left, than what happened. Wow. I can see now that it would have been worse for me Wow. if I had done that. Wow. And, um, and he said, I wish I could find that guy and help him. Wow. Powerful. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Man, this has been an amazing conversation. When we close our conversations, we like to ask um, our guests to leave us with one simple tip that the listener could take and apply in their lives. I'm going to tweak it a little bit, and I'm going to ask you two, so it's going to be challenging. <laughs> what is one simple thing that somebody who has gone through PTSD and is experiencing that, what is one thing that you would like them to hear from you, and what is one thing that somebody supporting somebody with PTSD you'd like them to know? Maybe it's a loved one, a friend, somebody they know. Well, luckily, uh, I had to give a, a, a presentation at Fort Lewis, Washington uh, during the midst of the height of the war in Iraq. I was invited up there by um, uh, the general that was in charge of Fort Lewis. He had mm. read the book War and Redemption, and he wanted me to come up and talk to his, his senior leadership. Cool. And so before I did that, I asked my vets, well, what would you say in one or two sound bites? One of the things they said is, don't abuse substances. It just makes it worse. Mm. It's a dead end that goes nowhere and just makes you worse and worse. Okay. And the other one is, you have to learn to treat yourself with mercy. And the only way you can truly do that is be merciful to others. You'll never believe that you can receive mercy until you've given mercy to others. 
That's amazing. I think all of us, regardless of whether we've experienced it or are with other people, that's a lesson that all of us can learn and apply and do better with in the day to day. Sure. That's great. Yeah. Well, one more question. Um, what are you most excited for with retirement? Well, um, I always said that I wouldn't fully retire from the VA until I found a clientele that was just as interesting as veterans. So I found that in missionaries. Cool. <laughs> That's great. And the other thing that I really need to do is I need to take my wife on a lot more trips. Awesome. <laughs> That's great. Any fun ones planned? Well, COVID's been a little bit of a downer. It kind of has. We've never gone on a we've never gone on a cruise and the first thing was we were going yeah. to take a cruise to Alaska and then we're going to take a cruise in the Mediterranean and we we're going to take a cruise to Scandinavia and we've got the money to do that. We've got the time to do that <laughs> and I'll be damned if we're able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Pandemics, man. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's funny. Yeah. Wow. Well, great. Well, Dr. Larry, uh, I can't call you doctor. Sure. Okay. Dr. Larry Dewey, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, the, the, the journey that you have gone on, um, you know, writing the book that you had to write because nobody else did. It, it's, it's really amazing and inspiring. And, um, yeah, I just, I think it's valuable for all of us to, to learn how to listen, to be there for other people, to stay active, doing positive things in the world and to love other people and, and show mercy is it's, it's an amazing mission. It's an amazing message. And yeah, we're just so grateful for you. I'm so grateful. Go ahead. Well, I wrote that book with my veterans in mind. I wanted them to be able to read it. And I wanted their families to be able to read it. It's not a text that, it is a text, but it's not a text. Any sentient, intelligent adult can read that book and understand everything that's in it. Yeah, that's great. There's a lot of case studies in it as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah it's, it, after I'd finished it, I wasn't going to get it published. And my veterans knew I was writing about them. And they said, you have to publish it. And I said, I will only publish it if you'll come in and you'll read everything I wrote about you and make sure it's correct, and you agree that it should be in the book. And that was the second half of the story. Wow. Every one of them came in and did that. And so what is in there is their authentic stories. That's amazing. That's amazing. So cool that you would be able to go out and capture that in the way that you did. Um, I'm curious, Is do you want people to contact you? Is there a way that people can get a hold of you if they've got questions, or where can they find the book? Uh, they can just... They can just Google the book or just go to Amazon. Uh, that's the easiest place to get a hold of it. Cool. Uh, that's I, great. Yeah. That's just, just go to Amazon, buy it used. It's a lot less expensive. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good advice. That's good advice amongst a lot of other uh, great advice. So yeah. again, thank you so much for your work and everything that you've done. This has been a really fun conversation and I'm excited to have many more, um, not in front of microphones, but out by the lake, by the ducks and by... When we um, run into each other, like exactly. we did just the other day. Just again. yesterday. Yeah, yep. it was great. Yep. Well, awesome. Well, thank you again so very much for doing this. We are really grateful for you. Thank you. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. 